Good morning. Good morning. I needed to hear that. Thank you. Good morning. So welcome to uh, the final class we have, final time we have together for this Elijah Elisha study. Um, today's focus will be solely on Elisha. Um, we had a couple sessions in on Elijah. We're only going to get one in on Elisha, really. Uh, pardon? That's what women get, just a small portion. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I'll shut up. So we'll uh, begin with prayer. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather and study together. And um, just pray that you would open up your word to us, that there'd be encouragement from the, these stories in Second Kings about your servant Elisha, how he relates and points us to your, your son Jesus. I ask you to just open our eyes and that we would behold wonderful things from your word and hear what you would have us say today. Your son's name, amen. All right, so what I've put up, once again, I wanted to promote my references. The one that I have up there, you all have probably seen that already. That's the one that I would recommend for all of you to read, focused entirely on Elijah and Elisha, the gospel. It's called Faith in the, in the Face of Apostasy, the gospel according to Elijah and Elisha. That one is, like I said, almost a devotional read. Um it's it mixed for a good study guide as well. It's got questions after you read each story, and it always, always points points you to the gospel, points you to Christ. And there were two other references that I would also recommend. Meant a lot for me. They're a little, little um, I guess you could say. They're, they're more traditional commentaries. This is one by Paul House on First and Second Kings. So this is on the entire collection, First and Second Kings. And this gave me a very, very good overview of how all these stories fit in a bigger, kind of a bigger picture scheme of the context. I actually got all kinds of good good work out of all three of these. All three of these men who wrote these books, really, they bring out different ideas. You, you get different stories, different observations from each one. But he's really good at showing you how Elijah and Elisha fit into the overall context, not just of First and Second Kings, but of the Bible. For example, I didn't know this, but if you read the historical, the historical Context: First and Second Kings is believed to have been compiled by one person or maybe a collection of people, and it was written at the same time as Joshua, Judges, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings. They believe one author wrote them all, and they're one big volume divided into those uh, six books, and they tell one big long story. And uh, Joshua is like the um, the story of God giving the people the land, 
judges, they sin big time and mess it up. And God gives them a king in First and Second Samuel, a really righteous king. And then Second Kings, First Second Kings, the kings go bad, and eventually the land that was given to them at the beginning of Joshua was taken away by God. But a remnant is left, and there's hope for a future. So it's kind of like this big flow of what's going on. <clears throat> and Elijah and Elisha are like a microcosm of that going on as well. So I recommend that one, and I also want to recommend my other uh, reference. Cursor's harder to move with this newer technology. <laughs> New technology always improves things. First and Second Kings commentary by Ian Proven. This one here is the best at coming up with a lot of the illusion connections. This man has all kinds of insight into making connections, and I've used a lot of what you've heard me say came from him <clears throat> as well. He's probably the most technical to read, most challenging to read of the three, but if, as long as you don't get upset by the fact he uses little Hebrew words in here that you can't pronounce or don't know the meaning of, you can get the gist of what he's saying, and it's really fascinating. So I would recommend all three if you want to do a further deep dive into these stories and into the context of First and Second Kings at large. So with that said, I want to get into um, the story of Elisha, who, for those listening on the recording, unfortunately last week's session didn't get successfully recorded, so you're not going to be able to hear it. But Elisha took the mantle from Elijah, and we kind of left it there, and we said something about Elisha. One thing that's obvious about Elisha, Elijah is very, very similar to Moses, and Moses had a successor named Joshua. Elijah is very, very... <clears throat> therefore, Elisha is the su successor to Elijah, and he's like Joshua. He's Elisha is to Joshua like Elijah was to Moses. There's a, a connection there. There's, there's like a repeated theme going on. And one of the interesting connections is in the name itself. Joshua, if you know in Hebrew, Joshua means Yahweh saves. The, the Josh up front is short for Yahweh's name. And the Shua at the end is salvation. Yahweh saves. Well, lo and behold, Elisha uses the other name of God, Elohim. My God saves. The last Shua at the end, Elisha Elish, is like Joshua. Their, their names both reflect the salvation of God. They have the same meaning of their names. One is Yahweh saves Joshua. Elisha is my God saves, just like Elijah was my God is the Lord. My God is Yahweh. Now Elisha is my God is, he saves, he's salvation. So the whole history of Elisha is actually one of God's salvation of his people. And as we'll see in this lesson, Elisha, 
Well, Elijah, remember Jesus said Elijah was the second coming, sort of. That's not the right word. He's, he, he prefigured John the Baptist. Jesus said that. So if Elijah was John the Baptist, what does that make Elisha to Jesus? It makes Elisha like Jesus. Because Jesus, what's Jesus' Hebrew name? It's Yeshua, it's Joshua, it's also God saves, the, the Lord saves. So really, Joshua prefigures Jesus, Elisha prefigures Jesus, and he actually prefigures Jesus in ways that nobody else in Scripture does. There's a whole lot he does that is so Jesus-like, and that's what I'm going to show you today as we go through these Elisha stories. He's not only like Joshua, he's even more like Jesus. Because Joshua, when he came into the promised land, he, he conquered, he went to war, he gave the land to the people. Not so much salvation per se, salvation of souls, it's fulfilling the promises of God in the land. Now, Elisha doesn't do that. Elisha doesn't go and give land to the people. Elisha's going to go and he's going to do all kinds of miracles like Jesus. He's going to look a lot like Jesus, actually. The text from 1 Kings 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 13 records 12 different miracles that he does. Now, Elijah didn't do that many miracles. Elijah didn't do that many at all. He did a few, but remember, Elisha, when he was with Elijah on that last day, when Elijah was taken up and ascended, he asked for a double portion. And the Lord gave him a double portion. He did twice as many miracles. And he lived much longer than Elijah. He actually lived into his 80s. Why Elijah was probably taken in his prime, about 40 years old. So Elisha has a long extended ministry. And over that time, he does a lot of amazing things that reflect prefigure what Jesus is going to be doing. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just take you through those some of those 12 miracles, some of which aren't in your notes because they were intended to be in last week's lesson. But if you look at Elisha, uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, as soon as Elisha receives the mantle, and he's alone now, like in 2 Kings 2, is it 14? I think it is. He comes to the foot of the Jordan, and just like Joshua before him, he parts the Jordan, and he walks across on dry ground. And in that moment, that's, that's actually when he first calls out, where's the God of Elijah? You know, he's been with Elijah all this time. He goes, where's the God of Elijah? And he takes the mantle, strikes the Jordan, and it parts in front of him, which had just happened to him earlier the same day because Elijah did the same thing when they crossed the Jordan the other way. So here's Elisha going into the promised land. There's 50 prophets up on the hill, 50 prophets of Jericho. And they see this, and their statement is, oh, the Spirit of Elijah rests upon Elisha now. And they realize this is a legitimate prophet. 
He just did what Elijah has done. The Lord is on him. And then that, that should remind us of, this is happening in the Jordan. The Spirit is witnesses coming upon Elisha. And what happened when John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan? The Spirit of the Lord, he witnessed. John the Baptist witnessed. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus in the form of a dove, like a dove. So you have the same like anointing coming in the Jordan. Now Elisha is going to go forward, not just like Joshua, but he's going to go forward and be like the coming Messiah. And the first place he goes, these prophets of, of uh, these 50 prophets are from the town of Jericho, which is right on the edge of the Jordan. And if you remember the first place Joshua went, when he crossed the Jordan, the first place they conquered was Jericho, right? But they conquered Jericho. They encircled it seven times. God made the walls fall down. They flattened the place. And one interesting thing about that is when Jericho's walls fell, Joshua made a curse on that city. He said, essentially, he said, if anybody rebuilds this city, he's going to do it at the cost of his firstborn son. And if anyone reconstructs the wall of the city, he's going to do it at the cost of his youngest son. So he's basically puts, Joshua puts a curse on Jericho. Now, if we look at our text... We're going to see that Elisha is going to go to Jericho and he's basically going to do, he's going to reverse the curse. He's going to take the curse that Joshua put on the city, he's going to reverse it. And before we do that, I'm going to show you how Joshua's curse was fulfilled. Back before, the very verse before Elijah came on the scene in 1 Kings, Elijah showed up in 1 Kings 17. So if I go to 1 Kings 17, where Elijah showed up, if I go one verse up into chapter 16, verse 34, the very verse before Elijah shows up out of nowhere to start our series so many weeks ago, there's this verse, interesting verse, is sort of thrown in there. It says, in the days, in his days, the days of King Ahab, who had just become king at that time also, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He rebuilt Jericho. It had been a flattened wasteland for hundreds of years after Joshua conquered it. Or the Lord tore down its walls through Joshua. Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. Hundreds of years later, Joshua's curse takes takes effect on the man who decides, hey, let's rebuild this town. It looks like a good place to put a city. He puts the city up and he loses two of his sons, fulfilling the word that Joshua spoke. So Jericho was cursed. Hiel of Bethel decides, let's rebuild it. And he pays a price. But Jericho stays. It doesn't go away. In fact, Jericho actually 
is there to this day. You can go to Israel and see Jericho. It has been a flourishing city for a long time, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is actually due to Elisha. Because when Elisha comes out of the Jordan River with the Spirit of God upon him, the first place he goes is to this renewed Jericho, this freshly built Jericho, just built in the last, whatever, 10 years or so. It's a new city that got rebuilt. But it still has a problem. It still has a problem. Second Kings, the end of Second Kings 2. Let me read it here. Second Kings 2.19. Now the men of the city, this is the city of Jericho, said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. So they built this city. It still has this, it's still like a curse on it. it you can't grow anything. The water is bad. So what does Elisha do? He says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I've healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to to the word that Elisha spoke. And that's true. Jericho is still there to even this day, not just the day that Kings was written. Jericho is there to this day. It's a flourishing agricultural community around it. The water's good. All because of the word of the Lord through Elisha. Elisha literally reversed the curse of Joshua. So he's like Joshua, but he does the opposite. He actually blesses Jericho. And it remains to this day. And then, just like Joshua, the next thing is, says in Second Kings 2.23, he went up there to Bethel, which is the, the town where Hiel, who built, rebuilt Jericho, came from. And Bethel is known as a bad town right now because Bethel was where one of the golden calves is set up. It's the center place of idol worship that is the bane of Israel throughout its history. There's the two calf idols that their first king, Jeroboam, set up in Bethel and Dan. Bethel was where this happened. And this is, so in other words, there is a whole center of idol worship in this town. And Bethel's not far from Jericho. In fact, Bethel is where Elijah and Elisha came through. They, they went through Bethel to get to Jericho, to get to Jordan, to get Elijah taken up, and then Elisha's reversing the path. He's going back to Jordan, back to Jericho. Now he's going back towards Bethel. And remember, Bethel is a town, an ungodly town. So as he's going up towards Bethel, some small boys come out of the city, and they jeered at him, or you could say mocked him. This is First Kings 2.23, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. And nobody messed with Elisha after that, by the way. That's the last time anybody tried that nonsense. Um, but that's not... 
that's not because Elisha was special. It's because they were mocking the God of Elisha. And it says in Galatians, our God shall not be mocked. Mocking God is a punishable offense. The law says you can't mock God or the people of God. So what happened here, Elisha was actually just calling down the judgment of God on someone mocking God. And these she-bears come out of the woods, kill 42 sons, their boys, meaning their sons of the people of Bethel. Remember, the people of Bethel are basically idolaters, they're evil. So their sons receive the due penalty of their error in this case. Now, that is one of the few times that Elisha will actually call down judgment. After that, I think the part of the reason for this is God is establishing the authority of his prophet. He showed, he proved to the prophets he's legit because he split the Jordan and they saw the spirit basically upon him. He's proven to the people of Jericho that he's a man of God who can bless those who are obedient to God and he's proved to the people he can curse those who are disobedient to God. He's got the full authority to bless and to curse depending on whether people obey or disobey. He's got the full authority of God. The people know that now. Anybody who knows Elisha, who, who has been watching this play-by-play play knows this man has got something. <laughs> He's a man of God. Leave him alone. But I can't move on from this little text here about, the, about him cursing the boys when they said, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. They were, they were mocking him, apparently because of his balding head and the way he looked. And they were also saying, go up, go up, twice, jeering as if Elijah just went up. Why don't you go up too, kind of thing. Like, you're not like him. Go up, go up. And they're making fun of him. Now, the law says, don't mock God. But Elisha, remember, prefigures another who's coming. And we know that to be Jesus, who shares a similar name, God saves. And if you remember what happened to Jesus when he got mocked, there's a scripture in Isaiah 50. It says that he they pulled the hair of my beard and I turned my back and I didn't resist. And Pilate put a crown of thorns on his head and disfigured it. And and the soldiers mocked him and spat in his face and slapped him. And they're doing this to God, not just the prophet of God. They're mocking God himself in the flesh. And in that moment, he had every right to curse, call on those she-bears, and he didn't. Which means Jesus is the better Elisha. In that moment, he chose not to curse. He chose to endure the mocking and become a curse for those who deserve that curse. So I'll leave that. 
None of that's in your notes this week. That was from last week that I didn't get to. We'll move on to chapter 3. And I'm going to go through chapter 3 quickly. Because chapter 3 is, um, you start to look at what the king is doing. And the king now is the second son of Ahab. The first son got judged pretty quickly after two years. His brother comes to the throne. And... um, and he's, he's a little better. He's a little better than his mom and dad, Jezebel and Ahab. Because it says it in the start of chapter 3. It says, um, in the 18th year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the good king down in Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. And that's actually a key number, the 12 years, because the 12th year occurs in chapter 9. And all these miracles happen between this 12-year reign. This entire, all the stories of Elisha happen during this man's reign, this evil king's reign. And there's, there's something to be told what's going on here. This man stands under judgment because we know Elijah prophesied disaster upon the house of Ahab, that they were all going to have be destroyed and the dogs would lick their blood and all kinds of nastiness was going to happen. But God in his mercy has postponed judgment upon this house for 12 years. For 12 years. And during this entire postponement of judgment, the judgment's going to come on this man. That's where God does his saving work through Elisha. Elisha's entire ministry that's recorded in chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, all the way through 8, is happening during the reign of Ahab's son. Jezebel is still alive, too. Jezebel is still around. She's not mentioned anymore. She's been backgrounded. But the evil is still there. Israel is still in bad shape. But God, at Israel's worst, most idolatrous time, is saving people through his man. He sends Elisha into this environment of an evil king and an evil queen mother who haven't been judged yet, and the judgment's still postponed for 12 years. In 12 years, both of them will be judged and killed at this, on the same day almost, I think within days of each other. But God has postponed, mercifully postponed the judgment because remember what he told Elijah on the mountain? I've got 7,000, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. Remember that? Back in First Kings 19, through Elisha, God is saving the 7,000. That's why the 12-year delay. It's happening. And you, and you read. we're going to go through these stories, and you're going to see the mercy of God just coming upon people in this horrible, idolatrous time with a bad king who does not fear God, a horrible queen mother, who we know all about, Jezebel, from previous stories. In the middle of all this, God is coming strong and mighty, and he's holding off the judgment for 12 years. So here's a little quick summary of Jehoram, back to chapter 3. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. So he's actually a little better because he's not a Baal worshiper. He's the... His brother was a Baal worshiper. 
he's learned the lesson that Baal worship is doesn't pay, doesn't pay well. Because the prophets of Baal got burned up on Carmel, his brother got destroyed by that also, and there's a curse upon the family for worshiping Baal. He's learned, I'm not going to mess with Baal, but he's still bad. So he's not like his father and mother, for he did not put away the pillar of Baal as his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That's the calf in Bethel, by the way. That's the same calf worship. So there's still idolatry being promoted. So anyway, that's going on. And then the the uh, king of Moab rebels against him in the next paragraph. I won't read that. That's another sign of the curse of God upon the family because Moab had been um, subservient to David and the kings of Judah and Israel from the time of David, uh, 150 years, had served David and the kings, and all of a sudden they rebel. So Moab says, enough of this, we're done, we're not going to serve you, and they rebel. So Jehoram says, wah, I want Moab back. My daddy had Moab. I want it back. So he decides, I'm going to do what my dad did. And this chapter reads a lot like 1 Kings 22, where Ahab wanted some territory back that he had gotten taken from him. And he calls, let me get my buddy Jehoshaphat down in Judah to come help me. So he calls for help, reinforcements. He, he allies with Jehoshaphat again who happens to have another kingdom that is subservient to him and it hasn't rebelled, named Edom. So it says in verse 9, the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So these three kings are going to go and they're going to try to get Moab back into the fold. And I'll just read a little bit here and you'll see how foolish this endeavor is. Second Kings 3, 9, the three kings, and when they had made a a circuitous march of seven days. There was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. So they're wandering in the desert and they're running. They haven't, they haven't really thought this out very well. They've run out of water. And the king of Israel, Jehoram, says, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. He's despairing. Um, and then Jehoshaphat, does the same thing he did to his father and says, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we can inquire of? He did the same thing to Ahab. And remember, Ahab called in the prophets and they had the little um, one prophet said, if you go, you die. The other 400 said, cool, go, go try. And of course, he followed the 400 and died. And that was the story. So but that was because Jehoshaphat said, Let's inquire of the Lord. Here he is again. Let's let's get the Lord involved here. You know, we got a problem. We're, we're out in the middle of the wilderness of Edom, and there's no water. Now, I wanted to, if I can get to this map. All right. So I'm going to show you what these guys have done. This circuitous march of seven days. This is where Israel is, and I'm going to, Move way up, because Edom and Moab are way down here. See, here's Edom, here's Moab, and here's Judah. So he came down, got Jehoshaphat out of Jerusalem, 
They come down, pick up the king of Edom, and they were an attack from the south, which is way, 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 way away from Samaria, way off the map. There's Bethel at the top there, so Samaria's off the map. So they're down here, no water, and the king is going, oh, the Lord brought us here to destroy us. It's just, okay, maybe that's true. Joshua says, hey, this is the time to pray. Let's bring in a, let's bring in a prophet. The funny thing is, <laughs> they have no idea. This king has no idea who the prophets are. He has no prophets to call on. He has no help. This king has gone, marched arrogantly to take Moab back, and he has no help. But it says, and the reason I showed you this on the map is I want to show you something here. There's actually a servant a humble servant that says one of the kings of Israel's servant, verse 11, said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. The three kings are going to him. And one thing to note is Elijah, Norm, Elisha normally lives up, he stays up in Israel because that's where he belongs. That's where he's ministering. But the kings are down here and that servant said he's with us, which means really what that means is Elisha is with the army. He came with them. And, they, and the kings don't even know it. They don't even know it. And the servant says, hey, we got the prophet Elisha with us. And Elisha was with them. And he, he's with them for a reason. And it's about to become clear. He's about to prophesy. But it's interesting that the kings had no idea that God's man was in the camp. And he had actually followed with them. And I can surmise why was he doing that. He's with, he's ministering to, encouraging the people of God in the army, the people who are in the world, but not of it, kind of, in this army. He's there ministering to them. The servant says, hey, we have a prophet. He's right here. And neither, none of the kings had heard of him. Now, Jehoshaphat hadn't heard of him because he's in a different kingdom. But he says, oh, that sounds like a good guy. Let's get that guy. If he poured hand, water on the hands of Elijah, Elijah was good. He's a good guy. Bring him in. And also, it's interesting, he says he poured water on the hands. Remember, that's what they need. They don't have any water. They have no water. And yet, he says, here's a guy who poured water. Bring this prophet in. So, that's what they do. They bring him in, and Elisha, Elisha thoroughly, totally disrespects King Jehoram. He shows no respect for him whatsoever which I think is, it, remember, Elijah showed no respect for Baal and the prophets of Baal. Elisha's doing the same thing to Jehoram. And he even says it, and Elisha said in verse 14 of chapter 3 of Second Kings, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. So he's, that's the respect he has for the leader of the army that he's been following 
but he's not following the king. He's ministering to the people of God. He says, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for the righteous one with you, Jehoshaphat, because I regard him. And I'll uh, skip over some of the details there. It's an interesting story. But he does prophesy in verse 17. The Lord says, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. And in verse 16, he actually said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. So Elisha says, I'll give you water. God's going to give you water. You need water, and it's going to come. And the water's going to come not by wind or rain, which is, this compares to Elijah, but it's the opposite. Elijah's rain water came by wind and rain. And Elisha says, we're going to bring it without the wind and rain. God can bring it either way. He doesn't have to rain to bring you the water. The word of the Lord can just make this water show up out of who knows where. And that's exactly what happens. He calls. He tells them the water's coming. And the very next morning, water everywhere. It just floods in out of nowhere. It doesn't say where it came from. It just showed up at the word of Elisha. So God brought the water. He brought the water to rescue his people in the army. Elisha's ministering to the people of God. And water is given to them in the desert. And it has, it's, it has nothing to do with the kings. Other than the kings finally said, hey, we need water. And they, the kings finally discover, especially Jehoram, he discovers there's a prophet here. And he has the word of God, and he just supplied water for my army. And he's kind of like, Jehoram now knows who Elisha is. This chapter basically introduces, what this chapter does is it shows you who's really calling the shots. Is it the humble prophet, or is it this foolish king? Um, Jehoram turns out to be a very incompetent king. You could say he's impotent. He's ineffective. He can't accomplish anything. And in all these chapters up until his judgment 12 years down the road, he is just, he's, he's, he's useless. He's a useless leader. And Elisha, through the entire time, is basically calling the shots. He's the one that protects Israel He's the one that brings water for Israel. He's the one that brings in the chariots and horsemen of Israel to fight foreign enemies. And the king is totally just ineffective. The real king, the real one ruling Israel at this time is God through Elisha. And this chapter is showing that. So the water comes in. And the other thing that Elisha predicts is he actually predicts judgment upon Moab, and he he basically encourages them. Okay, now that you have the water, you're going to go in and you're going to you're going to wipe out. You're going to really really bring God's judgment upon Moab, and they do. And I won't read the details, but the Israelites. I'll read a little bit of it in verse 24. The Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. They went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. They overthrew the cities on every good piece of land. Every man threw a stone until it was covered. 
They stopped every spring of water, felled all the good trees, so only its stones were left in Kirharaseth, which is the capital of Moab. So, and, and Elijah, Elisha actually, actually prophesied all of those details, and they did exactly what he said. So judgment comes upon Edom. However, there's a little surprise in the last verse. Because, I mean, judgment is so bad that even the king of Edom does this in verse 27. He took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. That's how bad it is. He's even crying out to his God, killing his firstborn heir. And then the last sentence is a surprise. This is not expected. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they, Israel, withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So after all of that, Moab pushes Israel out. And Israel goes back home. And the kings of Judah go back home. And Edom goes back home. And Moab stays in rebellion. And you go, well, that's a surprise. I thought they were going to win the battle, win the war. Well, they won the battle, but they didn't win the war. And I believe what that, why, is because Jehoram is a king unworthy of having Moab under him. Moab has rebelled against them, and that's God's call. God says, you will never have Moab again. So even after they, God uses Israel to bring judgment upon Moab, he doesn't let Moab return to their subservient status. So there's also like a judgment upon Jehoram in the same in the same story. God brings water for his people. He judges Moab, and he actually judges Jehoram by not letting him get what he wanted in the first place. He doesn't get Moab back because he's a bad king too. So you see Elisha is suddenly, he's like, he's playing geopolitical spheres here. He's... He's now calling, he's showing what God is, God's calling the shots on, on Jehoram and on Moab. And the story doesn't focus on Judah. If you want to read about Judah, you go to the Chronicles. But this is what's going on. That's what chapter 3 does. So chapters 2 and 3 establish Elisha as he's a legitimate prophet of God with the spirit upon him. He's, he can bless the people. He curses those who are not God's people. And he also is used to turn the hearts of kings and rule on the highest level, geopolitical level. So God is totally in charge of what's going on through this time period, through this man, Elisha. And actually, none of that was in the notes either. That was all last week. I never got to. So now let me move on to chapter 4. This is where it gets fun. So that was like uh, four miracles, actually. That's parting the Jordan, healing the waters of Jericho, cursing the boys and the she-bears come out, and the water in the desert for the army. So now comes chapter 4. This is where he looks a lot like Elijah, but only better. The next miracle is going to be Elisha and the widow's oil. Now, this sounds like a story that Elijah actually, um, 
Elijah did, because remember Elijah went up to um, a widow up in Lebanon, Zarephath, and stayed there for three years. And God provided oil for him and her and her son. So you see that's happening here. But there's some interesting differences to note. The first is in the first chapter 4, verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets came to Elisha. Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So this is a wife of one of the sons of the prophets. Back in the days of Elijah, Elijah was totally alone. Now there's companies of prophets. We saw that in chapter 2. They went, there were sons of prophets who watched, who witnessed the whole event at the Jordan. There were sons of prophets, even in wicked Bethel. These, these camps of the prophets are all over Israel now. God's been building the 7,000. He's adding to them. He's, there's more than just the old one-man Elijah. There's now a company here. There's a company of prophets. And they live normal lives. The prophets, here's, they get married, they have kids. They're not just holy hermits like Elijah. They actually have families. So they're not a whole unlike us. The sons of the prophets are like the Christians today in our, in our society. They're the ones who we live in community with each other. And that's what's going on. There's a lot of community going on in these chapters. So the wife of the sons of the prophets, her husband dies. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Now, there's something to keep in mind about this. The creditor, if you, follow, if you truly follow the law in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, this situation should not be happening in Israel. Because if someone in the family is suffering, they're kinsmen redeemers who will buy back the land and give the land back to you. And there's provisions so you won't starve because you don't, you're not supposed to like take the entire field but leave some for the poor. If Israel was truly a godly nation as specified in the law, this shouldn't be happening in Israel. But it is. It just goes to show you that Israel is not a godly nation anymore. That a wife of the sons of the prophets is at a place where she's forced to sell her two boys as slaves just to have enough money to live. But Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, not too few, and go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went with him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and she poured. They brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And the oil stopped flowing. Once the final vessel was full, 
And she came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell it. Sell the oil, pay off your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. There's God having mercy on his people, providing for their needs in an unexpected, miraculous way. Sounds a lot like the oil of the widow Zarephath, except that was just enough to keep them alive and only keep three people alive. This is a lot more oil, not only to pay their debts, but to allow this widow and her sons to live. So there's a greater expanse of blessing here. Elisha is like a greater Elijah. And we know also that Jesus is the greater Elisha. Because every one of these miracle stories that we're going to look at in chapters 4, 5, and 6 remind us of miracles Jesus did very similarly. And your notes actually list some of those. And the similarities with Jesus' miracles are I've written all throughout this page here. God's redeeming them. There is no kinsman redeemer. God becomes their redeemer. No one else is going to do it. God's going to do it for his, his people. Now the vessels, as I said here, the question, what have you? Jesus asked that question to his disciples on more than one occasion when there was crowds of people who were starving. What do you have? And that's when they go, oh, we got five loaves and two fishes or whatever the numbers were. And they're going, but what's that to feed all this? And you know what Jesus did. He took that, multiplied it, and fed it. So that's what you're seeing going on here. What do you have? Jar of oil. All right. Pour it out. And it kept pouring, and it kept pouring, and it kept pouring. Very much like what Jesus did. Multiplying this oil. So there's there's an allusion to the feedings, especially both the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000, which are in all the Gospels. And there's also another allusion here where pour into an empty vessel. Remember, Jesus ordered that at the wedding at Cana as well. We're out of wine. Put some water in these clay pots. 80 gallons of water, and it all turned into wine. So there's an allusion to Jesus' future miracle of that as well. So you have Elisha's like doing, he's, he's prefiguring what Jesus is going to do in the Gospels. And we're going to see that pattern throughout. And this is all new too. This has not happened. This kind of miracle activity has not happened in the Bible up until now. And what Elisha's doing is very much, wow, Jesus is going to do this someday. So that's what he does with the oil for the poor widow. Then, another thing, verse 8, he meets another woman. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food, so that whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. So here's, not only do you have a poor, destitute widow, you've got a wealthy woman who fears God. 
opposite extremes. But this woman is practicing hospitality. She's a woman of hospitality. She has her husband make a guest house for Elisha as he's traveling around. That Every time you come by Shunem, stay in our house. So that's what happens. And then one day he came there, he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to his servant Gehazi, call this Shunammite. It's interesting, I don't even mention her name. She's actually, she's a fascinating character in these stories. She keeps coming up. She's not just in this story. She shows up in chapter 8 as well. Call the Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him and he said to him, Say now to her, see how you've taken all this trouble for us? What, what is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. I've got enough. And he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi said, well, she doesn't have a son, and her husband's old. And he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, oh, man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And that's a story we've heard throughout Scripture, actually. In fact, those words about this time next year were said to someone else. Remember who that was? To Sarah. Sarah. She was barren in her old age. Abraham was even older. And God told her about this time next year. I've got the reference there. Genesis 18, 10, 11. About this time next year, and then she laughed, and Abraham laughed, and they named the son Laughter. That's what Isaac means, Laughter. So there's like uh, this is kind of like another retelling of that story a little bit. And there's other stories throughout the Old Testament of there's several I didn't even list them. Hannah, barren, the Lord gives her Samuel. The parents of Samson were barren. God gave them Samson. And then we know in the New Testament, Elizabeth, barren, angel Gabriel comes and says, she doesn't say about this time next year, but nine months from now, you'll have a son. So this this is a repeated thing. God visiting, having mercy upon women who are barren. And in this case, most of these women, they're, they're wealthy women. They're well-to-do women. They have everything, but they don't have what they've wanted, the deepest desire of their heart, a son or a daughter. And yet God blesses them. And, and this faithful woman doesn't even ask for it. It's like God just blesses her with it. She's like, I'm okay. I'm rich. I got everything. No, don't, don't lie to me. She's like, don't give me this. Like almost like there's a humility to her. It's like, I, I, not don't do that. Almost like I'm not worthy of this. So she has a son. So that's that's a miracle. And now the story actually jumps well in advance because it says when the child had grown. So clearly, uh, probably seven, eight, nine, ten years have passed. So he's kind of a window of the Shumanite woman early in the in this time period, and then 10, or, 10 years later or so, 
you're going to hear her come back into the story, and it just shows, it's just right here written. The child had grown. He went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat up in her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up, and, and actually what she does here is just, it's, it's just the detail. She is a woman of faith. There's remarkable faith in what she does here. This isn't typically what you do when uh, your child dies on your lap. But she does it. She says, put him, she puts him up in the, in the man of God's room, the guest room, shuts the door and doesn't even tell her husband, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again to him. He's not in Shunem right now. He's somewhere else in Israel. So let's go, let's go, let's go. She didn't even tell her husband, which indicates to me that her husband probably wasn't a man of faith to the degree she was because her husband probably wouldn't have agreed that this happened. He actually is asking her, why do you want to go? It's not, it's not a holy day. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. And she says, all is well. She doesn't even tell him. She doesn't want him to interfere with what she knows. There's only one person who can bring mercy to this situation. Is My husband's probably not going to see it my way. I'm going to just go straight to God here. I'm going to run to him. So she saddled the donkey. She sit, said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me until I tell you. She set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Now Mount Carmel's up high. So she's gone up a mountain to get to Mount Carmel. That's where he happens to be right now. And it's probably a, if you look at the map, it's 20 mile journey or so. I could actually get back to the Mount Carmel region where all this is happening. So here's Shunem. And she's going all the way to Mount Carmel to find him. And basically, Elisha is traveling all over the place in here, just ministering to the various people of God who live in these different places. So Shunem to Mount Carmel. Kind of similar, the same room where Jezreel to Mount Carmel. That was Elijah ran that distance after the big showdown. She's going to go up. Mount Carmel to find to find the one man who she knows can bring mercy to this situation. And when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, "Look, there's the Shumanite." Essentially, they don't even give her a name. She's just the Shumanite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, "Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child?" And she answered to Gehazi, "All is well," which is what she told her husband doesn't even trust Gehazi. And there's reasons for that. Gehazi turns out to be not really a godly man later on. And she probably senses that. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God and she caught hold of his feet, Gehazi is trying to push her away, kind of like disciples to Jesus. Get away, kids. Stay away from him. The man of God said, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden it from me. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what's going on. 
So Elisha doesn't know everything, but he's trying to discern what's going on here. She has, she's saying all is well to everybody. Then she said, did I not ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? It's like, don't, I didn't ask for this. And he's, he gets, oh, oh, now I know. He said to Gazi, tie up your garment, take my staff, go. If you meet anyone, do not greet them. If anyone greets you, do not reply. Lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, and she, she's actually quoting what Elisha said in chapter 2. This is verbatim. What Elisha said to Elijah three times before Elijah was taken. This is exactly what exactly what Elisha said to Elijah. She says this to Elisha. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. That's exactly what Elisha said three times. I'm, I'm with you. I'm staying with you. You're gone. Not Gehazi, not your staff. You're coming. We're going to go together. She's fixing her eyes on God, on the man of God, just like Elisha did for Elijah. And Gehazi goes ahead, lays the staff on the face of the child, but there's no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and said, the child's not awakened. Elisha comes to the house. He saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. So he's in there alone praying. He went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. As he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon the child, upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shumanite. So he called her and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came, fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. She picked up her son and, and went out. So Elisha, Elijah did the same thing. He also raised a dead widow's son. He's basically done everything Elijah has done now. Multiplied oil, raised the dead. And of course, I've listed in, in, in your notes other times, other times where in the New Testament especially, there's a lot of people who's experienced this. I listed in 3C there, Elijah and the widow's son. Jesus raises a widow of Nain's son in Luke. And Nain happens to be like, Right around Shunem, by the way. It doesn't show on the map. It's a New Testament town. So basically, there's a widow of Nain, and there's. So that that whole miracle is basically a re, a rehappening of what he does here in the same location. There's Jesus raising Lazarus, and in Acts, even, there's Peter raising Dorcas and Paul raising Eutychus. The Paul raising Eutychus story actually is similar to this too because that's a, a boy who falls out of a window listening to Paul preach, sleep and dies. And Paul goes down and prays and they take him up alive later. It's just a lot of this happens more than, more than once. But with 
In the Old Testament, the raising of the widow's son under Elijah and the Shumanite's son under Elisha are the only two resurrections like this. They're the first ones, and they prefigure what's going to come in the New Testament era. And it's also notice Jesus is the better Elijah and Elisha because Elijah and Elisha, if you read the ritual they went through, Elijah went through a similar ritual of trying to get God to answer his prayer. It takes a while. When Jesus raises the dead, he just speaks it and boom. Lazarus, come forth. It's it's the difference between God saying it directly and a human interceding on behalf. Elijah and Elisha have to pray a lot and work hard. Jesus just spoke the word and every one of Every one of the resurrections of Jesus, just he goes into Jairus' daughter's house, speaks, and she's up. And Lazarus. So there's Jesus is the better Elisha. So that's chapter 4. And chapter 5, the next one, he's done a miracle for a poor widow. He's done, shown mercy twice to a wealthy woman of hospitality by giving her a son when she was barren and by raising that son when he dies. Now, he's going to go out of Israel. He's going to do a miracle for a foreign Gentile who has no faith in God whatsoever. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, chapter 5, was a great man with his master and in high favor because he... By him, notice it says, the Lord had given victory to Syria. So the text is acknowledging that he was a great man and Syria was conquering, but it was always the Lord that was giving him victory. So there's a little note of God still calling the shots, even in Syria here. But he was a leper. He's a leper. And the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Naaman's wife, Would that my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Notice it was another little servant girl speaking to the powerful great man. Hey, there's a prophet. Same thing happened in chapter 3. Remember the servant to Jehoram said, hey, there's a prophet with us. It's the humble servants. They make their little appearances in these stories and and God uses them. In fact, she's, she's an evangelist. She's sharing the good news of the gospel, if you will, to Naaman. And she is a slave. She's been carried away from her family. She's in a foreign nation. And here she is speaking to power. And God uses her little voice to basically what's going to end up being, he's going to save Naaman through this girl. The start of it is right here. She's, hey, go see this man. Go see this man. And by the end of the story, Naaman is a believer. He's going to become a believer after what he goes through to get cured of his leprosy. This little 
girl is a very unlikely evangelist whom God uses. And that could remind us of other unlikely people who spoke to power, like Josh, well, like Joseph in prison speaking to power, Daniel, exile in Babylon speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, humble nobodies at the time. I mean, Daniel rose to power afterwards, but before he was a nobody. Joseph was a nobody, and God uses these humble people who are exiled away from home, not even close to the people of God, and he uses these people to get the word out and to basically spread the kingdom. So we see that pattern going on there. Yeah, I actually skipped a, I skipped a miracle there at the end of chapter 4. I'll get to it later. I just realized that. Um, so Naaman, because the Naaman story is really, this is a great story. There's no way around it other than to read it and go, this is amazing. So you can compare to these, uh, these people speaking the power. So he goes, it's, a, it's, it's actually humorous, because the king sends a letter to Jehoram, the king of Israel. Useless, unbelieving Jehoram. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, imagine receiving this kind of letter. You know that I've sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy, O king, as if this prophet works for you, so I'm telling the boss of this prophet to do his thing, and I'm giving you ten talents, I'm giving you, I'm paying you the best I have to get my number one general cured of leprosy. And Jehoram, as faithless as he always is, just sort of throws up his hands and goes, oh, oh, woe is me, kind of stuff. He tears his clothes, which is like, why are you tearing your clothes? He's sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Elisha actually says that. Why, why are you tearing your clothes? You tear your clothes when there's like a death in the family or something? What are you doing? Jehoram just, he's upset because he, he thinks he's going to die because he thinks Syria is going to come and beat him up if he can't cure leprosy and he can't cure leprosy. So Elisha, Elisha says, just bring him to me. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me. Verse 8. And, um, and Naaman comes with his horses and chariots. Horses and chariots. That's, that, that phrase comes up in these Elisha stories a lot. This is not the first time, actually. Because when Elisha saw Elijah go into heaven, he said, the horses and chariots of God. He, he said that. He saw that when... The horses and chariots showed up during the ascension of Elijah. And now we have a king of Syria bringing horses and chariots. And the horses and chariots just keep showing up throughout. But this is these aren't God's horses and chariots. These are Naaman's horses and chariots. Syria's horses and chariots. And he, and he goes to Elisha's house. 
And he was surely expecting Elisha to come out and talk to him, but he sends a messenger to him instead. And the messenger tells him, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. And it's key what he said there. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman's angry. He's, he's a proud man. Obviously, he's responding like, doesn't the guy even have enough decency to come out and talk to me? And here's the other thing he says. Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But once again, verse 13, the servants come to the rescue. Those little servants, the humble servants, come near and they said to him, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Now that's, a, that's an interesting question there. Because if you, if you compare the words, what did Elisha say to him? He said, go wash, in verse 10, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. He has a phrase in there. Your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. When Naaman is angry, what does he say? He thinks he heard Elisha say something a little different. He thinks he heard um could I not wash in them and be clean? Verse 12, the rivers of Damascus. Could I not wash in them and be clean? He, he leaves the little phrase in the middle out, and my flesh will be restored. He doesn't hear that part. Basically, it's like, if you go to the Jordan and you wash seven times, not are you just going to be clean, you're going to be healed. He's going to restore your flesh. Because probably what he was thinking and what those around him were thinking was the ceremony to be called cleansed of leprosy in Leviticus called for you to wait seven days before you would be declared clean. And Elisha says, go wash seven times and you'll not just be declared clean, you'll actually be healed. But he missed that he missed that little phrase. Can I go here and be clean? Can I do this ritual somewhere else? Why do I have to do it in Jordan? Can I go to Damascus and just go through this ritual? What's the point? And then see the servants. The servants are calling attention to this. They're saying, Hey, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Question mark. Is that what he said? You remember what he said? They're 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 helping him remember. He said, Your flesh will be restored. You miss that. If you do this, you'll be healed. What have you got to lose? Go! So God uses his servants to basically talk sense to the man and humble him. He humbles him and goes, yeah, you're right. What's it hurt? Let's go. He goes, wash, be clean, goes to verse 14. He went to the Jordan, dipped himself seven times. And according to the word of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Exactly what he said. He obeyed, and it happened. 
his flesh was restored. And then the author adds, like the flesh of a little child. Which has connotations as well. His flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child. Because Jesus, if you go to like uh, point four there, a Gentile comes to faith. He becomes like a little child, 4D. Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Words to that effect, Matthew 18, 17. So basically, Naaman has humbled himself to the point of being like a little child, is what that verse is pointing to. He's humbled himself. He's obeyed. The Lord has healed him. And when he comes out of the water, he returns to the man of God. And he says, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now this present from your servant. And of course, Elisha says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman is still trying to, he thinks he can pay the man of God for this. And Elisha says, nope, this wasn't my doing. This was God's doing. There's a reason Elisha didn't come out to meet him. There's a reason Elisha didn't go with him. There's a reason Elisha only spoke a word. Naaman needed to know something. He needed to know that it wasn't Elisha that was healing him. It was God who was healing him. God is the one who was healing him. Go away from me. Just follow these. Do this cleansing ritual. Your flesh will be restored. And he knows now there's no God in all the earth except the one in Israel. It was God who cleansed him, not Elisha. He couldn't buy it. As I said up there, you can't buy me grace. You can't do that. He brings the money. No. God can't be bought. Grace can't be bought. Grace is a free gift. God gave Naaman the humility to obey and he healed him. And here he is basically professing faith. And he also asks for forgiveness in the story. He, he asks for forgiveness. He, he says that, um, he says, oh, I got to go back home. So Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant to all. That's the Gehazi story. Let me get back up where I was. Um, oh, yeah. In this manner, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there in Syria leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha says, go in peace, which is essentially, yes. You're asking for forgiveness. You've received forgiveness. So you see these, this is alluding to what Jesus does as well for us. He grants forgiveness as well to the humble who come for it and ask for it. 
And Naaman, in essence, he's he's like a, a new Gentile convert. Became like a little child. And what happens to him, there's a similar story that happens to Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, in chapter 4 of Daniel. The mighty king is humbled and acknowledges God as the God of all the earth. But there's also allusions to a story in the Gospels of the blind man in John chapter 9, the man born blind. If you remember, uh, Jesus came up to him and said, go dip yourself in the pool of Siloam. And he did, and he was healed. He, He was restored. And then he has this interaction with the Pharisees. And his faith is built through the entire interaction. And at the very end, he goes and finds Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm the one you're looking for. And he bows down and worships him, basically becomes a believer. The, so the story, this story here really points to John chapter 9's. The man born blind is like a retelling of that story in Jesus' day. And then I think I'll skip the Gehazi is greedy story because that's just Gehazi being a fool. Gehazi goes back and asks for some money. He actually asks for a tenth of all the ten talents. He asks for one talent. And Naaman says, sure, whatever, take it. And then the man of God says, okay, Naaman's leprosy is going to be on you from now on. So Gehazi in this story is very similar to Stories in the New Testament by Judas Iscariot, who for money, 30 pieces of silver, he was greedy. He saw what happened to him, Aniris and Sapphira and Acts, keeping money back for themselves secretly. He saw what happened to them. Gehazi gets a similar fate. And there's several more miracles that I don't have time to cover. But I will I will say, I want to cover the last one in chapter 6. The last one I was going to get to. <clears throat> chapter 6, we find out, verse 8, the horses, we find out that the king of Syria can't succeed in his attacks on Israel. So he sends an army. Because every time he tries to send an army, Elisha tells the king of Israel, they're coming at you from this direction. And the king of Israel is able to dodge. And basically, every time the king of Syria is trying to attack, he's, he's being foiled by Elisha's intelligence, intelligence operation, if you want to use a modern-day analogy. God's telling Elisha where the king of Syria is. In fact, it even says... There's a, <clears throat> another servant that tells him, Elisha the prophet who's in Israel, in chapter 6, verse 12, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. So a servant's telling him, hey, Elisha knows exactly what you're saying because he's telling the king of Syria, is, he's telling the king of Israel where to position his troops to get out of the way of these raids. So he sends all his troops after Elisha this time. And he goes, and he's going straight for Elisha. I've got to 
shut down Elisha because he's obviously the real ruler here. And this is where the fascinating story of... Um, just got to read it. When the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. There's those horses and chariots of Syria. Servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha had more horses and chariots of fire. These are the same horses and chariots of fire that he saw when Elijah went to heaven. Here they are again. More than the horses and chariots. Way more. You don't need to be afraid. They can't touch us. And then it gets really, really comical because Elisha actually goes out. He says, please strike this people, this army with blindness. He struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Elisha said to them, this is not the way that is, this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. He's the man they're seeking. And he's, he's, he's leading the entire army away from his house into Samaria. And yet he's the man who is supposed to be whom they're seeking, but they don't know it. They can't see it. He leads them right into Samaria. And then he says, open their eyes now. And they see they're in the middle of enemy territory surrounded by Israelite people. And they're like, oh, no, what happened? So God completely protected Elisha with the horses and chariots of fire. But the fascinating thing here is, and this is, this is prefiguring what Jesus does, Here's the two opposing camps. And the king of Israel says to Elisha, shall we kill them? Shall we kill them? And Elisha says, no. Prepare a feast. Celebrate with them. We're not going to kill them. So he prepared for them a great feast. 8.23 And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master back in Syria. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This, do you see this? It's like you've got Gentiles in opposition to God's man. They can't touch God's man. God's man leads them into the middle of camp of Jews they're hostile to each other and God says he kills the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile and they feast together without fear of each other without fear of death so this whole little event is prefiguring what Jesus did to create his church between two hostile groups and also it prefigures the ultimate feast that we're going to experience on that day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, on that final day. And that's, that's really encouraging. So I just wanted to make sure I said that one. There's three or four more miracles that you can read through. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and close this out. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to just share your word, learn from it, be encouraged by what you did 
for your people in a, a time not much, not very much unlike our own, where there's lots of opposition, lots of unbelief, and yet you cared for your people back then, and you cared for your people through Jesus, and you care for your people today. We have the horses and chariots as well protecting us if we would just open our eyes and see them through the eyes of faith as Elisha's servant saw, Lord. Pray that for each of us as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen.